to see you. How are we? Like doing all right. Awesome. Glad you're in the house today. Uh, we're in week eight of a year-long series on the book of Mark. And so if you have a Bible with you or a device with a Bible app, grab those things. And let's go to Mark chapter 2 together. Mark chapter 2. Well, as a pastor, I get to officiate several weddings and several fu- uh, funerals all throughout the year. And believe it or not, people often ask me, James, which of the two do you prefer more? Uh, well, as you might expect, if I had to pick between the two, I would probably pick weddings uh, because weddings are pretty easy and it's kind of fun showing up to a party, you know? I mean, it's what a wedding is, right? It's a celebration. It's a time for rejoicing. Uh, for the most part, most people are pretty happy to be there and so that makes my job really easy. I show up about 45 minutes early, strap on my microphone, get my flower pinned on. I stand at the front, I read a script and then if I really like the people, I will stay for the reception and eat some of their food and enjoy their drink and snap a few pictures, and I'll bug out and go home whenever I want, right? Um, but, but funerals, listen, funerals are different. Uh, when it comes to funerals, the blessing as a pastor is getting to love and serve a family who's going through a really difficult time. But funerals are tough because there are many emotions involved. People are typically in sorrow and in mourning And depending on the situation, there may be certain questions about why this happened, when it did, or the way it did. And so just in all honesty, after a funeral, I typically go home and I am drained emotionally, spiritually, sometimes even physically. Now, the reason I bring these two occasions up is to ask you this question, and please don't miss it because this question will set the tone for the rest of the message. All right, here it is. Which of those two occasions best illustrates your life? Is your life more like a wedding or is your life more like a funeral? Do you spend more time in joy and in celebration or do you spend more time in sorrow and in mourning? Now, here's the reason I ask that question. Because according to Jesus, and this is what we'll see in our passage for today, life with him is meant to be like a wedding, right? Joy and celebration are meant to be the normal experiences for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that some of us would never know that by looking at certain people who claim to be Christians, because there are certain people who claim to know Jesus, and something's always wrong, right? I mean, they look like they sucked on a lemon. They're always acting like the dog just died. They're just miserable people. But I need you to hear me. That is not meant to be the norm for believers. The norm is meant to be the exact opposite. And today, we're going to talk about why. So if your Bibles are open, let's dive in and we'll get to work. All right, Mark chapter 2. Starting in verse 18, here's what it says. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, we'll stop there and talk, all right? Uh, In verse 18, Mark calls our attention to two groups of people the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. And he tells us that both groups were fasting. And the idea there is that they made a practice of fasting. Now, what we don't know from the text is why they fasted. You know, people during this time fasted for a variety of reasons. But what we do know is that during this ancient time, anytime a person fasted, it was always due to sorrow and mourning. So in other words, you didn't fast because you were happy, all right? You fasted because you were dissatisfied or discontent with something either present in or missing from your life. And so with that understanding, I mean, consider this question with me. Jesus, why aren't your disciples making a practice of fasting? 
Why don't they make a practice of entering in to sorrow and mourning? Now, that is a fascinating question for two big reasons. Number one, it was a direct challenge to Jesus' spiritual devotion. I mean, think about it like this. Imagine the parent that goes to the other parent and they question that parent on where, why their kid is so awful, right? Like, hey, uh, why doesn't your kid listen and obey? Everybody else's kid listens and obeys. Why is your kid such a little monster when nobody else's kid is a little monster? Look at me, you're smart people, so you know the answer to this question. Even though the question is about the kid, who's being challenged in that moment? The parent, right? I mean, the implication of the question is this. Hey, if you were a better parent, your kid wouldn't be so awful. Look, that's what's going on in the passage. The question is about Jesus' disciples, but Jesus is the one being challenged. He's being questioned as if to say, Jesus, if you were more spiritually devoted, your disciples would be fasting just like everybody else. Now, the second reason this question is so fascinating to me is this. God only commanded his people to fast one day a year. That's it. And it was on the Day of Atonement. If you want details on the Day of Atonement, you can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 16. But it was the one day each year when the high priest would make atonement for the sins of Israel. And again, it was only on that one day that God said to his people, I want you to fast, don't eat, enter into sorrow and mourning as your sins are being dealt with. So think with me about what these people are really asking Jesus. Here's what they're really asking. Jesus, why aren't your disciples doing more than God commanded? I mean, the disciples of John are doing more than God commanded. The Pharisees, they always do more than God commanded. So Jesus, why aren't your disciples following suit and doing more than God commanded? Now, you know what that question is rooted in, don't you? In case you don't, I'll just show you. It's rooted in this, legalism. And I've included a simple definition here of legalism to get us on the same page. Here's legalism. It's trying to earn the grace and blessing of God by keeping the commands of God and then some. You see, legalism is all about external measurable behavior. And it's that behavior that serves as the basis of God's approval for the legalist. Now, that behavior, as my definition suggests, uh, is not only informed by the commands of God, but it's also informed by all the legalists adds to his commands. And just so you know, legalists love to add to the commands of God because it provides them yet another way of feeling confident in earning his grace and blessing. Now, to make it practical, here's what the attitude of legalism might sound like in our culture today, all right? Don't miss it. Uh, Maybe I'm that person who says, I was in church four hours this past week. Like every time the doors were open, I was there. Spent another three hours serving people Uh, I read my Bible every day for at least an hour, except on Friday. I only got in 30 minutes, and I felt extremely guilty about it. Uh, Got out of bed early every morning, spent extended time in prayer, gave $200 to the church, made a donation to the local homeless shelter. I didn't watch any TV because it's all garbage, and it's a waste of time. And anytime I was in the car, I only listened to 104.7 The Fish. Praise God, hallelujah, amen, right? Now listen to me. Look, don't miss this. Even though that behavior might sound noble to some of us, When people do all that to earn the grace and blessing of God, do you know where it leads? It always leads to sorrow. Legalism always leads to sorrow. And I know it does because I grew up in it. Listen, for those of you who don't know my story, uh, I grew up in a church environment where it wasn't only about following the commands of God out of love for God. It was also about how your hair was cut. 
And it was about the clothes you wore. And it was about the holes you either didn't have or had in your body, right? It was about the movies you watched and the music you listened to and and what you drank or didn't drink. It was about the people you associated with. And please hear me, I'm not trying to say that we don't need to be wise in those things. We do, I mean, we need to practice wisdom. All I'm saying is that as a teenager growing up in that very legalistic environment, I constantly felt beat down, discouraged, and condemned because I wasn't ever really good at doing all those things people kept telling me I needed to do. And as a result, I constantly questioned whether or not God could actually love a guy like me. And at 19 years old, I was ready to walk away from the church. I just thought to myself, if if this is what Christianity is, I'm out. Like, I don't wanna spend the rest of my life being miserable because I'm always wondering how God feels about me. I mean, at least if I run in the opposite direction, I'll know, right? But then God woke me up one day to the reality and the truth. Look, his plan was never legalism. His plan was always Jesus. Please hear me today. Despite what you may have walked into church thinking, and despite what you may have experienced in other churches, God's plan was never for you to earn his grace and blessing by keeping rules and altering your external behavior. Instead, his plan has always been to give you his grace and blessing freely as a gift through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Which means if you're spending your life trying to earn certain things from God by acting a certain way, look, you have missed the point of Christianity entirely. Christianity is not about earning, it is about receiving. It is about you acknowledging that even if you had all eternity to try, you could never do enough to earn the grace and blessing of God. But that's okay, because Jesus has done all the necessary work to earn it for you. Now, with that explanation of legalism in mind, I want to raise a question that, that uh, the, the passage, I think, raises, and uh, it's, it's implied there, and I think it's really important to the conversation. Uh, the question is this, when I read the passage, was it wrong for the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees to fast? Was the practice in and of itself wrong? Well, I would say absolutely not. I would say that they were free to fast as much or as little as they wanted. Because fasting, except on the Day of Atonement for them as Jewish people, fasting was a matter of of freedom. And for us today, it's a matter of Christian freedom, meaning that we're free to participate and we're free to abstain. Like nowhere in the New Testament does God command us that we have to fast. Yet fasting has some incredible spiritual benefits. And some of you know what I mean because you just experienced some of those benefits, right? Uh, You took part in the 21 days of prayer and fasting And I heard some of your stories, like you fasted from food and from screens and phones and TVs and caffeine and other things. And God did some incredible work in some of your lives as a result of disconnecting yourself from those things. Again, the point is simple. While it's not wrong to fast, uh, we don't have to fast ever if we don't want to, but we're free to fast as much as we want to. Look, what these people did wrong in this passage is this. They imposed their convictions about fasting onto other people. Are you with me? In other words, they turned a matter of freedom into obligation, which is something we have to be very careful not to do. I know that here in the religious South, all kinds of people have certain convictions on all sorts of things that God is silent on. And I'm sure if you thought about it for about two seconds, you could probably think of one of those things, right? And here's the deal, like it's fine for you to have personal convictions on those things that God is silent on. 
But what you can't do is play God and start telling other people that they must follow your convictions as if your word is his word. That's getting into dangerous territory for many different reasons, but it's yet another expression of legalism. I love how Jesus decides to deal with this legalistic question. Uh, Instead of answering it directly, he decides to answer the question with a question. Go back to the text with me and I'll show you. Uh, Look at verse 19. It says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus speaks in a parable here and he uses wedding language to get his point across. And he actually makes two points, a biblical one and a practical one. And I'll start with the biblical point. It's this, I'm God and I've come to be with my people. You see, this wedding language that Jesus used would have made his Jewish listeners think back to certain Old Testament passages Because in the Old Testament, marriage is used often to uh, paint a picture of God's relationship with his people, the nation of Israel. I'll give you a great example of this, all right? Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says this. For your maker is your, your who? Your husband. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He's called. Now, in addition, when you study the Old Testament, you also find that the age of salvation this time when God himself would come to be with his people, it's often portrayed using feasting and wedding imagery. I'll give you an example of this. You can find one in Isaiah chapter 25, verses six through nine. I love this passage. Listen, it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Look, back to the point here. Here's all Jesus is saying. He's implying through using this wedding language and imagery. Guys, I'm the Lord spoken about in the Old Testament. I'm that divine husband you've been waiting on for centuries now. I'm the promised savior that God has been telling you was going to come. I'm God and I've come to be with my people. And that takes me right into the practical point. The practical point is this. Jesus is saying here, life, is me, life with me, excuse me, is like a wedding. Life with me is like a wedding. Uh, so when these people heard Jesus talking about bridegrooms and wedding guests, they would have thought about the Old Testament, yes, but they would have also thought about a typical Jewish wedding. Several years ago, I had the chance to travel to Israel, and uh, there was a Jewish wedding happening outside of one of the hotels we were staying in. And I'm telling you right now, it was out of control. I mean, these people threw down. They partied, not just for a day, but for several days. And the same would have been true in Jesus' day. You see, typical Jewish weddings could have lasted up to a week. And while a wedding was going on, look, nobody fasted. It wasn't appropriate to fast during a wedding. Because it wasn't a time for sorrow and a time for mourning. I mean, the bride and groom were married, they were with their guest, and it was cause for celebration. It was time to party and to rejoice. 
And this is the point Jesus is making here. He's going, you, you guys want to know why my disciples don't fast? Well, it's really simple. This isn't an appropriate time to fast. This is not a time for sorrow and mourning. This is a time for joy and celebration because I, the bridegroom, am with my wedding guest. And whenever I'm with my people, my presence should cause them to party like they're at a wedding. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 20, and and he actually flips the script pretty quickly. He's saying in one moment, it's not appropriate for them to fast now. And then he says, but there's coming a time when it will be. And he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, the idea there is, is one of violent removal. When the bridegroom is violently removed from his people. This is interesting. This is actually the first hint of Jesus' death that we see in the book of Mark. This is the first time we see Jesus alluding to his crucifixion. And he's just saying here, look, when that happens, and when I am violently removed from my people, then they confessed. Then they can enter into a time of sorrow and mourning. Listen, in light of that, I would say the application for us is pretty simple. Uh, This is why it's okay for us to fast at times today. Like, I don't know if any of you are like me. And there's this discontent or this dissatisfaction in you over those parts of you that are still broken and in need of repair. Like, am I the only one? Anybody like ever feel like that? Oh, okay, all right, thank you. I appreciate that. Glad to know I'm not alone. Um, maybe there's also inside of you, like there is inside of me at times, this sorrow associated with being apart from Christ. Like you ever have days so awful that you just sit back and think to yourself, I just wish eternity would hurry up and get here. Listen, it's those feelings of dissatisfaction and sorrow that should cause us to fast at times because fasting forces us to be dependent on the Lord while we long for him. And anytime we're fully dependent on him and longing for him, well, that's when Jesus does his best work in us. I want you to go back to the passage. Um, Jesus goes on and he keeps expounding upon this idea of how to respond appropriately to him being in the world with his people. And he uses two more parables to explain. Check it out. Verse 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. So the first parable is one about uh, uh, New patches on old garments. And basically, Jesus says, everybody knows you don't sew a new patch on an old garment. Because if you do, the first time you wash that garment, the patch is going to shrink. And the threads are going to tear away from where it was sewn. And that old garment is going to be in worse shape than when you found it. And then he goes on and and he uses a parable about wine and wineskins. And again, he says, everybody knows that you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. In the ancient world, wine was kept or stored in animal skins. And when a skin was new, it was flexible, it was soft. And as the wine went through the fermentation process, the skin would actually stretch, which is what you wanted because it would make room for the wine. Are you with me? When a wine skin was old and already used, well, oftentimes it would become brittle. And because it was already stretched out, if you poured new unfermented wine into that skin, as it went through the fermentation process and gas was released, it would cause that old wine skin to break, to burst, and long story short, all the wine would be ruined. Here's the point of both parables. Jesus is trying to get his listeners to understand that the old is incompatible with the new. 
Simple point, the old is incompatible with the new. So if this is the point he's making, what is the purpose in making the point? Well, it's really simple. Jesus is teaching in our passage that the old way of relating to God, which these people were very accustomed to, it's all they had known their entire lives, but this old way of relating to God was incompatible with and in direct conflict with the new way that he was ushering into the world. I mean, he's, he's trying to make the point. I didn't come just to patch up the old way. I didn't come to pour new wine into old religious wineskins. I came to change everything about how people know and interact with God. And so basically what he's just saying to these people is the old way that you've always practiced, it's not going to work anymore. And it's not because it's evil and it's not because it's wrong, but it's time has passed. Now to help make sense of that, I, I thought I would just take a few minutes and compare the old way and the new way of relating to God. And listen, I don't have time to get into the weeds of all this today, but I pray that at least the overview of it will help you to see how different things are for us because of Jesus. So let me put this up here for us. Here's the old way, all right? First, the old way included the law. Starting back in the book of Exodus, God gave his people, the nation of Israel, through Moses, what we know as the Mosaic Law. And he did it first and foremost to reveal his holiness to his people. Secondly, he did it to outline his standards for how his people were to love him and to love each other by worshiping him and walking in practical holiness each day. Now, look back up here. Because God knew he was given the law to sinful people, he also provided a way for people to make sacrifices anytime they broke the law and fell into sin. You see, a common theme throughout the entire Bible is this, that the penalty of sin is what, if you know it? Is death. Yeah, anytime someone sins, something has to die. Blood has to be shed to make atonement for that sinner so that his sins can be forgiven. And so the practice in the old way was, well, if I sin, I kill an animal. And not just any animal, but a pure, spotless, perfect animal. And that animal becomes my representative and it dies in my place for what I've done. And here's what's crazy. As often as I sinned, I made sacrifices. Third, God established as part of the old way priests. You see, a common person just couldn't waltz into the presence of God anytime they wanted. Nor could the priest for the most part. I mean, only the high priest could enter the very presence of God one time a year. Uh, It resided in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle or the temple. And uh, even when he entered on that day, the day of atonement, they made the brother wear bells and they tied a rope around his waist because it was such a serious moment. You see, if he went in with any sin in his life, any unholiness, any uncleanness, that dude would walk into the presence of God and he would die. And so the people knew, well, if the bells quit ringing, time to pull on the rope, right? Let's get him out. But think about this. If that was true for the high priest, think about the common person. They couldn't just go to God anytime they wanted. If they wanted to worship God, they had to go through the priest. If they wanted to make sacrifices for their sins, they had to go through the priest. And so understand, in the old way, people related to God from a distance. And then finally, the old way is what we could also call the age of promise, All throughout the Old Testament, God keeps promising through the prophets, it's not going to be like this forever. It's not going to be law and sacrifice and priest forever. I promise you one day I will send a Savior into the world and he will change this way of relating to me. And that brings me to the new way. Here it is. The new way is the way of grace. God gives us what we don't deserve by giving himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
You see, no longer are we required to relate to God through keeping rules and regulations because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, in his grace toward us, kept all the rules and regulations associated with the law on our behalf. Right? He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a perfect, holy life which means that that our relationship with God no longer depends on our ability to keep the law, but but it it, uh, depends entirely upon our faith in Jesus who kept the law for us. Uh, Next, as part of the new way, we have the sacrifice. The sacrifice that ended all other sacrifices. It's the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. You see, he shed his blood there to atone for our sins. Jesus became our representative, our pure spotless lamb, if you will. And he died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven by God. At the cross, Jesus drank down every bit of God's wrath and anger for every sin of every sinner that would ever trust in him. And the great news is we know God accepted his sacrifice because three days later he raised Jesus up from the dead. And the resurrected Jesus, here's what's amazing, as part of the new way, now serves as the high priest. I mean, just think about this with me. Right now, in this very moment, Jesus is alive. And he is seated on his throne in heaven at the right hand of God, where he is serving as our mediator between us and God the Father. I mean, the Bible teaches he's praying for us. Even even now, he's our intercessor. The Bible teaches that that Jesus is our advocate or our defender before the Lord, which means every time we sin and mess up, Jesus is going back before God again, and he's saying, I paid for that. My blood has covered that. Because Jesus is is now our high priest. Look, contrary to what other traditions and practices uh, uh, practice and teach their people, there's no longer a need for us to go through a human person to get to God. Other traditions might say it's true, but it's not true. The Bible says something different. It says that now you and I, we can go to God anytime, any place we want because of Jesus. He is our high priest and no other high priest is needed. And then finally, we could also call this new way the age of fulfillment. Everything God promised through the prophets has been fulfilled. Jesus has accomplished it all and he has ushered into the world a brand new way of relating with and knowing God. And so the question for us is, awesome, what do we do with all that? Like if this is true and Jesus has changed human history forever by changing the way sinful people relate to God, like what should our response be? Well, I'll give you two answers to that question and then we'll be done, okay? Here's the first thing. You gotta let go of the old and embrace the new. You've gotta let go of the old and embrace the new. Here's the reality. Even though we're not killing animals anymore and even though the majority of us probably aren't going to visit priests some of us are still attempting to relate to God in the old way. And I will prove it, all right? I guarantee you right now that there are people in this room who still are trying to follow rules and follow commands in hopes of pleasing and appeasing God. Like for some reason, you still believe that God's love for you is dependent on your ability to make yourself a good person. And the reality of that is seen in what you do when you break those rules and commands you're trying so hard to follow. Here's what you do, you ready? You start feeling bad, and you get all guilty, and you're so ashamed of yourself, and so you decide, I'm going to offer up some sacrifices to atone for my sins. God, I feel so bad, so I'm going to sacrifice some of my time this week, and I'm going to go to church. I I might even go twice, right? 
God, I'm gonna sacrifice some of my talents and, and I'm gonna serve at the next big thing Crosspoint does so that you can see how hard I'm trying. God, I'm gonna sacrifice some of my money this week and, and I'm gonna buy a homeless guy lunch so that you can see how serious I am about being a good person. Is this preaching to anybody? Look, here's the thing. I bet if you're living like that right now, you are living in discouragement and defeat because every day you're getting out of bed and you're always wondering, how does God feel about me? Does God love me? Does God accept me? Am I doing enough? Is God proud of me? And all those questions, all all they do is create in you fear and doubt and anxiety and those emotions determine the quality of your spiritual life more so than all the promises that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And if that is you, look up here. You have to let go of that old way. And I know it's hard for some people because as people, we love pointing to certain things we've done, right? We love to feel like we've accomplished and earned things. But I'm telling you, when it comes to God, there's nothing to earn and nothing to accomplish. So you are wasting your time. And as long as you're stuck in this old way, you will be stuck in sorrow. You have to let it go. It doesn't work. Instead, you have to embrace the new way. This new way that that is almost unbelievable. And many people get so caught up here because grace is a concept that they just cannot understand with their finite human brains. But the Bible teaches that this is true and, and that God extends grace even when we can't believe it. That's why we call grace this amazing thing, right? The new way declares over us that God loves us and accepts us not because of us but because of what Jesus has done for us. And that even when you sin and fall short, you can still approach God with confidence and with a clean conscience because the blood of Christ covers you and every sin you've ever committed or will commit in the future has already been paid for. You let go of the old and you embrace the new. And then the second thing is this. You live for the wedding. You live for the wedding. Uh, One of the most memorable weddings I've ever done. It may be the most memorable. It was for a former student of mine from my student ministry days. He and his wife, they got married at this beautiful outdoor venue. It was buried back in the woods and there were rivers and a waterfall behind us. I mean, it was incredible. The bad news is that uh, there was rain in the forecast for that day. And so the rain held off until about 10 minutes before the wedding started. And then the rain came and it wasn't like drizzle type of rain. It was torrential downpour type of rain. And so we're looking at, at uh, weather radars, and from the looks of it, it wasn't going to stop anytime soon. And so I go to this couple, and I just ask, what do you guys want to do? And they said, we want to get married outside. And so we took up all the chairs, and everybody grabbed their umbrellas, and we all stood outside in the pouring rain, and they got married. And it was awesome. Like, I love it. They didn't care. They did not let the conditions distract them from the joy of the wedding. Even though it was pouring outside, we we partied and we celebrated and we rejoiced because that's what you do at weddings, right? Listen, please don't miss this. I share that to say this. As followers of Christ, we know from this book that a great wedding is coming. One day in the future, Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming for us, his bride. And on that day, a great wedding will take place and we'll enter his kingdom and the days of fasting and sorrow and separation will be over. And we'll sit with him at his table and we will feast and we will rejoice and we will celebrate the salvation that is ours because of him. Now look, I need you to know as you move toward that wedding day, 
you're going to have some rainy days in life. You're going to experience some days that, that will leave you in sorrow and in mourning. And that's okay. Look, just don't forget about the wedding. Don't let the conditions distract you from the joy of the wedding. The bridegroom is coming. And you need to rejoice in all that he's done to get you ready for that joyous day. Would you pray with me? As we're bowing our heads and closing our eyes, I just want to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. As you're sitting there, I'll just tell you, man, I have been overwhelmed all week in writing this message. There were times I just had to stop as I thought about who God is and what he did to change that old way of knowing and relating to him. And my prayer for us today has been that God would just capture our hearts, that this news of what Christ has done would be fresh all over again. So I'm just praying that over the next few moments that that God would speak and he'd move in your life in ways that only he can. Listen, with that said, uh, I feel like it's appropriate just to talk to those of you who walked into the room today without a relationship with Jesus. You know, maybe you are that person who came in and and up until today, you have just, just seen God as this awful being who's always against you and and he gives you these rules to follow and anytime you break them like his he just comes after you and and today you've heard something different about God he's a God of grace and a God of love and he wants a relationship with you or maybe you are that person who is here and you're just constantly trying to earn something like you're going through all these religious motions because you think that's what Christianity is about Look, if that's you, if you're either of those people and you need to let go of that old way today and embrace the new way, the way of Jesus, the way of joy and celebration, if you need your life to change, if you want your life to be more like a wedding than a funeral, then I wanna help you say yes to a relationship with Jesus right now. Just where you sit in prayer, why don't you just say to God, God, I need you. God, I need you. I need to enter into this new way of knowing you and relating to you. And so God, I'm putting my faith in Jesus today as the one who sacrificed himself for me so that my sins could be forgiven, so that I could be loved and accepted by you. And I also put my faith in his resurrection from the dead. I believe that he conquered sin and death for me so that I could experience a life of joy and celebration here and now and also in eternity. God, would you forgive me? Would you save me? Take hold of my life. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed all over the room, I wanna ask you to do me a simple favor. If you just prayed that with me and you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, would you just do me the favor of acknowledging that by just lifting a hand? Just sort of real high. James, it's me. For the first time today, I put my faith in Jesus. I said yes to that new way. Just throw it up real high. Our prayer team's gonna come and they're gonna put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. James, that's me. Just throw it up real high where we can see it. Awesome. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, as we respond and we sing in the next few moments, 
I would just encourage you, especially if you have lost your awe and wonder over what Christ has done for you, just to come and to ask God to recapture your heart once again, to captivate you with his grace and his love, and to celebrate Jesus today. Father, in the next few moments, would you move in this place in power? God, do things that only you can do, and we'll give you all the honor and glory. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.